to you. Your Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. And I just want to ask you to start this sermon, a simple question. It's a question that you might have asked someone else in the lobby or in the hallway this morning or over a donut and a coffee. It's a question that we often ask mindlessly, kind of just to fill the awkward, empty space of bumping into someone, but it is nonetheless an important question for me to ask you this morning. And the question is this, how are you? How are you this morning? Do you find yourself worn out from this past week or maybe already worn out from this weekend? Because this past week, or even in this weekend, you have been looking for a true, lasting joy. And it has still eluded you. You may have thought that you found it this past week at some point, or even this weekend with all the flurry of, of sporting events and activities and, and, fe- and fellowships with friends, only to find out when you woke up this morning, it's gone and it needs to be recharged. It wasn't lasting and it wasn't eternal. How are you this morning? One thing's for sure. You and I are pretty good at looking in the wrong places for a lasting joy. One author put it this way. We won't find our joy in pleasure. Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure, if anyone did, and he once wrote, the worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Pleasure itself doesn't bring lasting joy. Unbelief does not bring lasting joy. Voltaire was an infidel of the most pronounced type, yet he wrote, I wish I had never been born. You can't find your joy in money. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of that years ago, but when dying, he said this, quote, I suppose... I am the most miserable man on earth. You can't find your lasting joy in position or fame, as this writer reminds us. Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than his share of position and fame, but he wrote these words, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, and old age a regret. Position and fame doesn't bring lasting joy. Military glory doesn't bring lasting joy. It was Alexander the Great who conquered the known world in his day. And having done so, he wept in his tent before he said, quote, there are no more worlds to conquer. So I'm asking you this morning as we get into this text, how are you? Are you tired of pursuing the elusive thing called joy in this world? Looking at the best that this world has to to offer you, be it things or people or substance abuse? Or are you ready to find the real thing? That's why I'm super excited that the text we're going to look at this morning is Matthew 18, verses 12 to 14. Because if you've been looking for a lasting, eternal joy, the good news is that you're going to find it in these three verses this morning. 
Matthew 18, look along with me in verse 12. Jesus speaking here. What do you think? Meaning, he's asking this question in a context of this, this chapter. What do you think, disciples? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see these verses. You understand these verses this morning. And you would have found joy. I promise. Now as we get into these verses, you need to know a couple things as we pull into them. They're happening in the context of a broader chapter. Uh, chapter, I believe chapter 18 of Matthew is one conversation. I believe it's unfolding as we compare it with the other gospel narratives and wordings that it's happening in Peter's home in Capernaum, which would make this little child that shows up in this chapter Peter's son. We know Peter was married. Paul will even call attention to that in his epistles. The occasion for these, this teaching is Again, as we compare the gospel narratives, the disciples en route to this house in Capernaum, which I believe is Peter's, en route to this house, the, the, according to Luke, the disciples were arguing with each other. They were arguing. You say, what were they fighting about this time? Who was the greatest? Among who? Among them. They were arguing and, and debating which one was the greatest. It's ironic that Peter was involved in this argument as they walked to his castle, right? This was the occasion for the teaching, a debate over greatness. That's what unleashes what we're going to see in chapter 18. And in this scene, Jesus is going to call a little child to him. Verse 2, he called a child to himself and set him before them. If we compare the other gospel accounts, he's literally holding this child in front of the disciples and he says, you want to be great? You've got to become like this. As a matter of fact, unless you become childlike in, in your faith, you don't have to worry about being the greatest in the kingdom. You have to worry about being in the kingdom. That's the scene of the teaching. A child on his lap. And everything that he's going to say in chapter 18, including some very hard things, don't hear our Lord, don't see our Lord speaking with a, with a stern tone and with a, with a wrinkled face of consternation. Every word he's going to say in chapter 18 in this living room, crowded with these disciples who want to be great, with a child sitting on his lap, he speaks with tones of love and tenderness, and his body language and his face speak welcome and concern. That's the scene of this teaching. He's going to continue to point at this child and say, you need to be childlike disciples. And not only that, you need to welcome and be humble with other childlike disciples. And, and not only that, he's also going to teach, but don't you ever cause one of my childlike disciples, no matter what their age, don't you ever cause one of my childlike disciples to, to fall into sin. 
which means you're going to have to get a, a handle on sin in your own life so that your sin, even though personal and possibly private, is never an occasion of stumbling for another childlike disciple. That's this chapter unfolding. Child on his lap. And it's at that point that we bump into verses 12 through 14. And there's a picture in these verses that we just read. It's the picture that was commonly used by our Lord. It's the picture of a lost sheep. As a matter of fact, in another account, a different scenario recorded in Luke chapter 15, our Lord uses the same picture of a, of a lost sheep. But it's interesting as you compare the Gospel accounts in the context of both the Matthew 18 and the Luke 15 account. In Luke 15, listen carefully, the lost sheep picture is being used to describe an unbeliever. But not so in Matthew 18. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus is not using this picture of a lost sheep to to tell the story of a non-believer needing to be saved. He's speaking alone to His disciples. And in chapter 18 of Matthew, He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about sinners who still need to be saved. He's talking, listen, to saints who are already saved. That's the picture of the lost sheep in Matthew chapter 18. To cut to the chase, friends, Matthew 18, 12-14 is about you. This is your face. Those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, this story is about you. And my theme is just kind of out there. I, I declared it at the beginning of the service. The theme this morning as we come to these three chapters is directed to believers. And the theme is simple. God loves you. God loves you. And this is something that goes far beyond the buzz of any lesser joy or pleasure in your life. And this one doesn't need to be recharged. This one doesn't need to be re-poured. This one does not need to be re-pursued. God loves you. You say, well, okay. That's, that's nice to hear that God loves me, but I live with myself. I hear my words. I listen to my thoughts. And although I'm, 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 I'm glad that God's allowed me to to, to see my sin and to see Him and, and He's saved me. I've embraced Him by faith. I'm glad that's done with, but I, I'm not an attractive sheep. I struggle, and sometimes in a downright ugly manner. This, these verses are for me? Oh yes. Actually, of all people in the room, you need to hear this the most this morning. God loves you. Say, well, how can I know that? How can I know that? And that's how I want to I want to address this text. The text tells you how you can know that this morning. In a way that 
is lasting. Say, how do I know that? Well, you're going to need to take a walk to a dusty mountainside in Galilee. And it's there you will see four realities of your shepherd's love for you. And it's all in these three verses. What's the first reality I want you to see? To convince you and remind you that God loves you. Here it is, number one. The care He shows. The care He shows. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? I, I want you to just let your, let your eyes be glued to the first half of verse 12. Because we have here a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Now here's a, here's a true pastor confession this morning. Bearing, it's not uncommon for someone to come to me on Sunday morning or Sunday night and say, I hope I didn't distract you when I got up during the service. I had to leave for this reason or that reason. Um, and, and, and they explain it to me. And I listen and I have the, I have the, um, the reluctant responsibility to tell them I didn't notice you left. I just don't. As a speaker, I run my mouth all the time for years. Um, I'm, I mean, I might notice someone gets up and walks out, but that is like zero distraction to me. There are other things that are distractions to me, uh, but that's like the least distracting. I just, I just don't know. I don't know how many are in the room, 100, and one of you walk out, I might not even notice it because I'm just worried about talking. But I... I do come to this verse and I'm like, well, he's talking about a hundred sheep. And when one of them departs, and he's talking about believers here, when one of them strays on their own, he can't help but focus on that one. That's the heart of a shepherd. He notices the one out of a hundred. And by the way, a hundred sheep was a, a common size flock back then especially for uh, someone that would be um, secure financially. Interesting study, shepherds in both Testaments. Abraham and others used sheep as mobile bank accounts. These are assets on the move. And whenever, for example, Abraham would move locations, he would take his flocks with him, and when the shepherds would settle again in their new area, they would hire shepherds to tend their sheep outside of the city. This was life back then. You say, what did a typical shepherd have with them? Well, a good shepherd always had a hooked staff. That staff was used to retrieve a fallen uh, sheep or a lamb to help them gain uh, traction coming up in embankment. They always had a hooked staff. They would also always have a club that club wasn't for the sheep. That club was for any animal or robber coming to take one of the sheep. A, sta a, a, a shepherd would also have a little pouch, a leather pouch or a cloth pouch to keep food in for themselves. Many of these shepherds would carry a musical reed in their, in their uh, possession that they could entertain themselves or others with when they were just resting. And it's interesting, a common shepherd would have names ready for each of the sheep. And they would often name their sheep after the characteristics shown 
by the sheep. You say they do that? Yep, the Bronlicks do that with their chickens, I found out. We were at their house Friday night, and they got all these chickens and all these eggs flying all over the place, and they have names for every chicken based on, in some cases, the personality. I mean, there's, there's a chicken named Extra Crispy, right? And there's, what are some of the other names? What, give me two other names. Drumstick and what? Chunk? Uh, okay, we'll have to talk about Chunk. Okay. <laughs> but I'm like, what, you name the chickens? I can't remember my poodle's name. Hey, come in out of the yard. You know, come in and go to bed. But these sheep, these shepherds would name their sheep. It's interesting. Jesus, as he tells you and as he sets the stage for communicating to you a joy that will never fade, pictures you as a sheep and him as a shepherd. I mean, if you think about it, that's, that's brilliant. That's vivid. Carrie... Zauner read in our hearing with us a few moments ago the Old Testament Psalm 23 text. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not be in a place of lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He demonstrates his care in the way we read in Psalm 23. You know what he does for you? As your shepherd, he leads you. There's never a day where he's not leading you. You'll never know a day where he is not nourishing you or feeding you according to that psalm. That psalm makes me think of our, the Lord's Prayer. He gives you your necessary bread every day. He leads you every day. He feeds you every day. He refreshes you every day. He calms you. He takes you even when you get the most basic of needs, water. He takes you to something that's calm and not disruptive spiritually. He protects you even when you don't know He's protecting you. He corrects you. That's why He has the staff with the hook. And if need be, He rescues you. Jesus perfectly demonstrates His care for you as a shepherd. One of the best books along these lines was written by a Christian and a shepherd named Philip Keller. The name of the book is A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. It's in our library, I'm sure. You might have read it. And Philip Keller shares these words. Just drink in these words. He writes, I am completely satisfied with his management of my life. Why? Because he is the sheep man to whom no trouble is too great as he cares for his flock He is the rancher who is outstanding because of his fondness for sheep, who loves them for their own sake as well as his personal pleasure in them. He will, if necessary, be on the job 24 hours a day to see that they are properly provided for in every detail. And above all, he is very jealous of his name and high reputation as the Good Shepherd. And listen to these final words. 
He is the owner who delights in his flock. For him, there is no greater reward, no deeper satisfaction than that of seeing his sheep contented, well-fed, safe, and flourishing under his care. This is indeed his very life. He gives all he has to it. He literally, literally lays himself out for those who are his. End quote. Yeah. Yet Jesus gets an A plus on the Psalm 23 care of you. He demonstrates his care. Or can I borrow the words from Isaiah spoken to the nation of Israel? Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will greatly or gently lead the nursing ewes. Isaiah 40, verse 11. Such care that you enjoy. Such care he shows. You say, well, what motivates that kind of care? What motivates the care that the shepherd has for you personally? For that, we need to go to the New Testament, Psalm 23. Hold your finger here and turn with me to John chapter 10 which we call the New Testament, Psalm 23. What motivates his care for you? Look at verse 11 of John chapter 10. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. Jesus says, that's not me. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. See, what motivates this care that you enjoy from your shepherd, Christian? Well, first of all, it's because you were bought. You were bought. Did you see twice in the verses I just read to you from John chapter 10 that the the shepherd gives up his life? You saw that twice in just those few verses. He purchased his sheep. His sheep are His because He purchased them with His life, we know. I remember when Jared was young, he'd want to play, and I'd say, go get whichever you want to play with with me, and he'd come out with both arms just huddling a bunch of toys. And he's like, all of these. And he'd come out with his gunslinging set and his Legos and stuffed animals, and, and astronaut stuff, and all that. And if you were to ask my son in that scene, as he's just maybe three, four years old, say, what are those, Jared? He would say, these are toys that I bought. These are mine. And I would just smile back, as you would too, to my young Jared, and say, well, those are your toys, but understand that they're really dad's toys. Dad bought them. You can stand in no glory of your own. That's why Luke records these words in Acts chapter 20. 
the scene is the, uh, is the meeting between Paul and the elders from the church of Ephesus. And in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, we read, Shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Or literally, the blood of His own In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you, Lord, were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In our study on 1 Peter, we've come across 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And even Paul will chime in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He writes in verses 19 and 20 this little phrase, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You, wanna, you, you say, why, does, why is he so careful with the care he gives to you? By the care, by the, with the care that the shepherd cares for me. Because not only were you bought, but even before that, you were sought. You were pursued. If we kept reading in John chapter 10, the very next verse says this. By the way, verse 16 is talking about you. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they, in the future, will become one flock with one shepherd. He says, i got to go get them, though. He's not only purchasing, but he's also seeking. Galatians 4.9 says, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, the initiative is with God to pursue you. Even before you were looking for God. You see, what is this based on? My goodness? That He should come for me because I'm worthy? That He should pursue me because I'll be good at being religious? No. No, on your best day, walking downhill with the wind of your back and my back, we were desperate sinners in rebellion worthy of only the, the active and eternal wrath of God. Yet He came for you. He came for you. It was according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. It was according to the counsel of His goodwill, Ephesians 1.11. It wasn't based on you or your goodness. Listen, it was based solely on His pleasure to pursue you. You say, why is a shepherd so concerned for me? Because He purchased you. And He pursued you. That's why. I mean, at this point, we should all be on our knees, right? Because we're like, why would He pursue me? Why would He purchase me? came across a story of a pastor who after the sermon one particular Sunday, he went to the lobby and he told everyone in the church, if you have a question about the Bible, I would love to answer your question. I'll be in the lobby. And only one person came to him that morning. And the pastor asked this lady, or excuse me, it was a gentleman, What's your difficulty? What's your question? And the gentleman said, My difficulty is the ninth chapter Romans. Says, Jacob have I hated, or excuse me, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Remember that verse? 
He says, that's my question. I don't understand that. And that's what the pastor said. He said, there's great difficulty in that verse, but which part of the verse is difficult for you? And the man said, the last part. I cannot understand why God should hate Esau. And the pastor looked at him warmly and said, you know what? That verse has often been difficult even for me. But my difficulty has always been with the first part of that verse. I never could understand how God could love that wily, deceitful, supplanting scoundrel Jacob. It's a good question. There's only one answer. Because of his pleasure. And because of his glory. Listen, let me tell you something about your shepherd. Your shepherd loves you so much. His care for you is so intensely powerful and constant that He'll do anything in His power to bring you back when you stray. Look at it this way. I like how He starts it in verse 12. I'll just use those words. What do you think? What do you think? If the shepherd sought you before you were His, so to speak, What makes you think He would do any less seeking of you once you are His and you stray? That leads us to the second reality that needs to prove to you this morning that you are loved by God. The second reality is this. You need to see the distance He goes. The distance He goes. Look in the middle of verse 12 again. You have a hundred, one strays. Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? Uh, what, what's, what's in our mind's eye now as we read the, uh, the last half of verse 12? This shepherd in this story, which we know now is Jesus, and you're the sheep that is straying, this shepherd is on the move. He is seeking. In the Greek, this would be a present active. I mean, it's... He's not seeking a little, then taking a break. He's he's on a mission. And every moment, from a human perspective, there's, there's activity, there's pursuit. And I guess I need to ask you this morning, can you hear His footsteps behind you? Have you strayed? Are you already entered into this story and you're like, that's me, I'm that sheep, I'm always tugging at the leash or pressing on the fence, so to speak that's me, then I say to you, if you hear footprints behind you, I know who it is. It's your shepherd. He's coming for you. This shepherd's on the move. It's interesting here, this word for straying in verse 12 is a Greek word that means to wander off, but it can also be translated in the context context of being deceived and therefore straying. Oh, your shepherd's on the move coming for you. He loves you that much. And he usually uses four means. As I study the New Testament, I'm going to see if I can summarize them for you in a helpful way. And they're in your notes, partially. What are the four means, listen, that the shepherd uses to pursue you when you stray? Let's do a little systematic here. Systematic theology. Letter A It usually starts here with conviction by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit, we're told in John chapter 16, verse 8, is that He convicts 
the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But it doesn't stop there. Once you are no longer in the world, but you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit continues His convicting ministry. I I pick up a nuance on that from Ephesians 4.30 where it's possible, listen, for believers to grieve the Holy Spirit because of their sin. Or if I can borrow Psalm 38 verse 4, the wording here, the psalm writer says, For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. This is a Yahweh follower. This is a God follower saying, I still struggle with sin, and when I don't deal with it, it starts to crush me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 51, verse 3, David, as he confesses his great sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He convicts me. He convicts you of sin that we won't repent of as His children. I'm told that if you take your Bible and you visit David Jeremiah's church that, and you ask him to sign your Bible, that often he writes this verse in your Bible under his signature. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. And at first, if, if, you're, if it was your Bible that was signing, you saw that, you would say, stink. I had one chance to get David Jeremiah to sign my Bible, and he made a mistake in the reference. Because I'm sure he meant 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. No. Dr. Jeremiah meant exactly the verse he wrote in your Bible. 11.31 says this, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. As, as, we, as we submit to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, we'll come to a point where we acknowledge our sin, we will judge ourselves and be free of this. Confess it. That's the conviction by the Spirit. But there's a second means if that one doesn't work. You ready for the second one? Application of the rod. This is a Christian getting a loving time or consequence of discipline from the Lord. You say, what's the main text here? This is a text you're familiar with. It's Hebrews chapter 12 that I'll read to you, verses 5 through 8. Just listen. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every child whom He receives. And it's for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all believers have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You'll never have a true believer in Christ who when they go off into sin, if they're not responding to the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, they will move on and graduate to the Lord bringing a loving hand of discipline into their life. That's what Hebrews 12 is saying. And, And our Lord reaffirms in His revelation of Himself to John in the Isle of Patmos in the letter to the churches in Revelation 3 verse 19, as many as I love, he's saying this to to the churches, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. 
Therefore, be zealous and repent. You say, well, what happens if there's still no turn? After the conviction by the Spirit and application of the rod, it could be then that we have to move to number three or letter C. This is correction through the church. Correction through the church. You say, well, where does this, what do I write down for this one? The next couple of verses, verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name for this purpose of church discipline, there I am in their midst. Verse 20 says that when the church is in a place where they have to be deployed by the shepherd to pursue the sheep, On his behalf, he says, I'm right in the middle of that. Verse 20. I'm right in the middle of that. How do we know that? Because of what we're reading in Matthew 18. He said, I go for my straying sheep. And sometimes that going is through the church. Now, I need you to look at your notes at B and C. Application of the rod and correction through the church. I'm going to make a statement. B and C are obviously interchangeable to a degree. You may go through B without ever going through C. But you'll go through B every time you go through C. Think about that. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. It's very serious stuff. That's how much your, listen, that's how much your shepherd loves you. You see, what if a truly saved person won't respond to the conviction of the Spirit or the application of the rod or the correction through the church? What happens then? Sometimes letter D happens. I'm not saying every time, but it is something that we see in Scripture I just call it deportation to the Lord. You might want to just say early retirement. 1 Corinthians 11.30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and, and, and a number sleep. That's talking about death of a believer. 1 John 5.16 has some interesting wording. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. And think of Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they're all kind of wrapped up in one there. All four means. You say, this is hard. It is hard. This is difficult. It is. Is it worth it? Yes. Yes. All discipline, Hebrews 12.11, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields, listen, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The psalm writer says in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Or in Psalm 119, verse 71, just a few verses later, It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Pain is present in all four of those means. In conviction, in application, and in correction. And if you want another shun word, we can say evacuation. But it's worth it to him because of the third means. The joy he knows. I'm talking about the shepherd. The joy he knows when the rescue is complete. Back in in Matthew chapter 18, verse 13. If it turns out that he, the shepherd, finds the lost sheep, that's you... Truly I say to you, He rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. I mean, the spotlight here isn't on the little flicker of joy with the lamb or the reuniting of that lost lamb with the other 99. The focus of the joy is on the shepherd's joy. It's over you. When you come back, You say, what well, does that mean he wasn't happy over the other hundred? Well, he's saying more than the, than the 99. doesn't mean he doesn't have a joy over them. He's just as joyful when they get lost and are brought back too. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that you are an object of joy to God? Listen, especially when you have strayed and repent. Do you understand that kind of love? Again, just listen to how God speaks to the nation of Israel in Zephaniah 3.17. Listen to these words. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. And He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. And He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Yeah, that. Husband, when you stray into sin away from your Savior, and you come back, there's rejoicing over you. Wife, when it's your turn and your sin gets the best of you and, and you leave the flock and your shepherd comes for, me, for you and brings you back, dear wife, he's rejoicing. I say the same to children. I say the same to teenagers. I say the same to church members. Oh, the joy that's explosive in the eternal heart of God over you when you've been rescued and brought back. Dr. John MacArthur is right when he says the Savior is infinitely more anxious and determined for restoration than is even the most repentant sinner. It's He that came for you when you were walking away. Just think about it in Romans 18, or Matthew 18, verse 12, up to the point of rescue, all that the shepherd could see is a sheep's back. Yet he pursues it. But his joyful glance is not only focused on the present, the rescued sheep, you, but it's a joy that's connected with what's coming in your future that brings him just as much joy 
this brings us to the fourth reality of, that proves to you his love for you. And it's the goal he chose. The goal he chose. Look at verse 14. So, here's a conclusion. It is not the will of your Father. Again, a reminder that we're talking about believers here. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these, watch this, little ones, childlike disciples, perish. If you're one of His sheep, two things are for sure. You are going to be like Christ someday. And you are going to be with Christ for eternity. When it says will not perish, that's the negative statement. Don't forget the positive statement. You're going to thrive. And you're going to live eternally with your shepherd. Listen to your good shepherd in John 10.28. I give eternal life to them, to the disciples. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or again in John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose, listen, nothing. You will be like Christ. He is going to fully conform you to His image for eternity. But until then, you're becoming more like Him. Philippians 1.6 I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And that day's coming where you will be with Christ. You're called children of God now, 1 John 3, 1. Not yet appear what we, what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. For we'll see him as he is. Or Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we'll also be revealed with him in glory. You know, this isn't the shepherd just saying, well, this is my best guess that I, I will get all my sheep to heaven someday and conform to my image to enjoy my presence for all eternity. That's my best guess. Or those are my good intentions. I really want that to happen. I'm going to give it a shot. That's not how your shepherd talks about you. If you are in Christ, you will be conformed to Christ. And you will spend eternity with Him you will not perish. But understand, when you stray, He's going to come for you. He's going to come for you. And all I have to do is a word of, war of warning here for those who would try to pull you out of His hand. That's a warning given earlier even in this chapter. Stumbling blocks. But that's enough for now. Because you asked a question at the beginning of the sermon. Does God love me? How do I know? You want to know how you can know? I've created a little rhyme for you today. You can snicker now. I heard a few while it was unfolding. You're pretty quick. Here's your rhyme. You want to know how much you're loved and that you are loved by your shepherd? All you have to see in these three verses is the care he shows. You're purchased and pursued. The distance he goes, he'll use any means necessary. The joy he knows when you come back. And the goal he chose before time began for you to be conformed to his image and enjoy his presence forever.
You say, well, what's my response to this love? This is satisfying. This is lasting. I can sing about this. What's my response? Well, let me just say, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're merely content to leave it out there at the churchy thing and the religion thing, the response you have is this. Come into the flock. Come into the flock. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Looking forward to when Christ hung on the cross and endured God's wrath that was due you. And willing Himself dead when that was finished. And, and rising again, conquering death. And ascending to the Father's right hand. Friend, I say to you, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't repented of your sin, you can change that like, well, right now. By confessing your sin and calling on Him to save you. Come into the flock. Why would you not want such love? For those of you who are already in the flock, I just say to you, especially if you're straying, it's been a long season perhaps, I say to you, humble yourself. For you to come back will take a profound level of humility. Say, what does it mean? Simply this, reach out to the hook. It's extended to you. And those footsteps you've been running from have actually been your rescuer. Turn and face the Lord. Psalm 119, 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Wow, what a prayer. This is Matthew 18, 12 to 14. This is the study that gives birth to the name of our series, The Shepherd's Reach. You say, okay, Jesus was giving a story here of a sheep and shepherd. And so what does this look like in 2023? It looks like the next few verses we're going to look at next week. It's the church coming for you. Church is not coming to you in a, in a, in a mean manner when you're in sin. They're not coming to you in a way that's in, of inconsistency. They're coming to you out of obedience to the shepherd who says, I need to go for another one that's strayed. And he goes through his church. That's you. That's why we call not only this message, but the whole concept of church discipline, we call that the shepherd's reach. Don't start the study on church discipline in verse 15. Start it in verse 12. Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing us to to dive deeply into these three verses, not in an academic way, not merely as an introduction to a, a sensitive series, but for the main reason that you gave it to us, for us to be filled with joy that you pursued us before salvation, you will pursue us after salvation as we need it, and you will even employ us and deploy us to pursue others in your name. What a love. Oh, to be loved like this brings a joy that's eternal. In Jesus' name we pray.